we'll start with looking at the core moral virtues. And what you'll find is it intersects with Vatupama Sutta in, to a large extent. Anumana Sutta is also a foundational uh, teaching that is also intersecting with Vatupama, but then very much so intersecting with this particular sutta, Karanimetta Sutta. And there'll be other suttas that I'll uh, bring up in order to reinforce uh, what Buddha means by these core virtues and also as an enabler to help us to uh, get to a deeper kind of meaning or practice when it comes to purifying ourselves. And the important thing to remember is that these core virtues, if we spend more time getting to know what they are, getting to understand why they're so important, it goes a long way to when we actually start to practice loving kindness. Because at that point, the foundation is very, very well established. Let's look at the first verse of the Karanimetta Sutta. So it begins, Karaniyamata Kusalena, what should be done of benefit and good? Yantang Santang Padang Abhisamecha, so as to realize the state of peace is this, Saka Ujucha Sujucha, one should be able, upright, and thoroughly upright, Suvacho Chasa Mudu Anatimani, easy to instruct, gentle, and not arrogant. We're going to examine the key words or phrases so we can understand what the Buddha is saying and what it means, and this will enable us to develop the meditation. So we'll go bit by bit. Buddha starts with what should be done of benefit and good, and really this Arta Kusalena of benefit and good, which I guess one could say that Arthur, it talks about aim, purpose, goal, advantage, profit or benefit. And then Kusala is good, right, proper, meritorious, conducing to well-being, acting correctly or rightly. And really it can be used in reference to what is good, what leads to well-being, what is right or proper action or behavior and virtuous. So what does the Buddha actually mean by all of that? Well, there are suttas that actually tell us what that actually means. And so this is very helpful to us. The first one is uh, the Arta Sutta, which is in Anguttara Nikaya chapter 10, and it's discourse number 181. And it really says, avoiding killing living beings, uh, stealing and sexual misconduct, avoiding speech that's false, divisive, harsh or frivolous, non-covetousness, non-ill will, and right view is beneficial. So this is really about Dasakusala, uh, the 10 good or wholesome conduct by body, speech and mind. And so what you find in this slide is exactly that, that these are the 10 wholesome conduct that is of uh, benefit. The second one that uh, comes up is also uh, the in the Anguttanikaya, it's called Kusala Sutta, and it says a very similar thing. In fact, it says uh, that it, the, the, the only difference is that rather than of benefit, it says good. So again, it's avoiding killing living creatures, stealing sexual misconduct, uh, avoiding all the wrong kinds of speech, uh, and then right view and non-ill will, non-covetousness. So there are two suttas there, the Arthur Sutta and the Kusala Sutta. 
both in the Angutunikai, chapter 10, and its discourses 180 and 181, where it actually confirms what the Buddha means by of benefit and good, what is beneficial to us and what is good for us. But then there are also other suttas which go on about um, it in a different way, but also uh, confirms our Noble Eightfold Path, which is the Arthur Sutta, which is also in Chapter 10, but it's Discourse 137. It says, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration, right knowledge, and right freedom is beneficial. And so you see cultivating the Noble Eightfold Path is also beneficial. Uh, the Akusala Sutta, which is the one before that one in Anguttanikaya Chapter 10, and it's Discourse 136, it talks about what is good, and again it talks about the Noble Eightfold Path. So again, beginning with right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. But then it goes on, right knowledge and right freedom is good. So in this way, you can see that in order to develop the loving kindness, you also need to cultivate both the ten good conduct by body, speech, and mind, but also the Noble Eightfold Path. And so if one is already walking the Noble Eightfold Path, then you know that you are already on the right track. And if you are um, uh, holding a sila in the sense of the Dasakusala, so this is even more than the five precepts, then this is also something that is of benefit and good towards the cultivation of loving kindness. And if you're not doing that at the moment, then it's something to look at. Uh, and if you're not familiar with Dasakusala, if you're not familiar with the Noble Eightfold Path, then it's a good opportunity to actually examine it further, do some research, look into it. And then as we go along with this particular sutta explanation and the instructions of the Buddha, you'll actually see why it becomes so important. That if we look at the wholesome actions by body, speech and mind, it's actually one of renunciation, non-harm, non-ill will. And then the Noble Eightfold Path is very much the same thing. All of them culminate um, in, a, in a pathway that is non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. So fundamentally, they're all the same. So to summarize, what Buddha is encouraging us is to cultivate this path of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. Our physical actions, our verbal actions need to align with this path in order to be wholesome and skillful. So when it comes to the bodily conduct, you refrain from killing living beings, you refrain from taking what's not given or stealing, you refrain from, in a higher sense, uh, misconduct with sense pleasures. So this is usually taken as sexual misconduct, but it can be broadened uh, depending on how strong you want your loving kindness to be. But particularly on the super mundane path, this misconduct when it comes to the senses is much more than just sexual misconduct. Then when it comes to verbal conduct, it's refraining from the false speech or lying. You refrain from harsh speech. You refrain from slander or divisive speech and then frivolous or empty speech. And then with mental conduct, it's having right view, having the non-covetousness, uh, the non-greed, and then non-ill-will. And with the Noble Eightfold Path, this is leading to ultimately the cessation of the whole mass of suffering, the whole mass of dukkha. And while it culminates in right knowledge and perfect freedom, you know, from the endless cycle of, of rebirth, really what we focus on um, 
in any sense is really bodily conduct. You know, this comes down to the right action, right livelihood. That's where it intersects with the verbal conduct. It's all those kinds of right speech that we were just mentioning. And then with mental conduct, it's the right view. But on the Noble Eightfold Path, it also includes right intention, then right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. And so the state of peace that the Buddha is actually referring to is Nibbana. It's actually ultimate liberation. And so when you see it explicitly stated like that, then you know that cultivation of loving kindness is part of the supramundane path. Buddha is actually extending it beyond just wishing people well, wishing people to be free from suffering. It's actually a practice in and of itself that can lead to towards Nibbana. Now we can look at Sako Ujucha Suhujucha, which is the first one is Sako, which is able. And this has the meaning of having ability, uh, showing capability or capacity, demonstrating competence, diligence. And so when you apply the third factor of striving in terms of virya, it's really one is able um, to cultivate what is of benefit or good. And this lends itself to what we went through just now, that we want to apply our ability, our capacity towards uh, this loving kindness. Then we come to uju and suju, which is upright and thoroughly upright. Upright means one has moral virtue, integrity, and strives continuously without laziness towards maintaining uh, this kind of uprightness. And it entails abandoning physical, verbal, and mental crookedness. So thoroughly upright implies even higher standards, that to a higher degree you establish your, your moral virtue, your integrity. The ten wholesome conduct or ten good conduct, this uh, table of Dasakusala, it's actually very important when it comes to being uju and suju, like upright and thoroughly upright. So with upright, you abandon the physical and verbal crookedness. So everything that appears in the physical action, so you refrain from killing, you refrain from taking what hasn't been given or stealing, you refrain from misconduct with sense pleasures. So rather than just keep it with sexual misconduct, I've actually expanded it because I think this is quite important. Our view gets tainted, it gets led astray when we open our sense doors. And I think as we go further into the core virtues, we'll see that. And this will become quite evident why we are seeking to abandon it to a higher degree. And uh, I'll say that for now. On the verbal side, uh, we want to abandon verbal crookedness. And this means refraining from lying or false speech. It means refraining from harsh speech refraining from divisive speech or slander, and definitely refraining from frivolous speech or empty speech. Now, a lot of the time people wonder, particularly about frivolous speech, but if you remember that Buddha talks about the root of everything coming from greed, hatred and delusion, the thing about frivolous or empty speech is that it is rooted in delusion. And so the more you actually speak in, in, in terms of empty speech, what happens is you are increasing delusion and that takes you off right view. 
So that's one of the reasons. Most people find that harsh speech, divisive speech is quite apparent because these things are actually quite uh, harmful and so it really reinforces the root of hatred. And then lying, you know, that's rooted in, in greed and what happens is false speech normally comes up because we want to actually hide something that uh, we are coveting or greedy about. Now, uh, when it comes to Uju, as I was saying, we're trying to actually abandon both this physical uh, and verbal uh, misconduct. And what we want to do is we, we want to actually be able to clean it up. So part of the meditation in the first instance is actually to look at our physical actions, our verbal actions, and to actually see whether right now or in the past we've actually been crooked. And to actually see that it's obstructive to being able to cultivate metta. And so you examine it. Initially, you'll find that when you look at it, there may be a lot of things, and so it may take you a little bit of time to clean it up. But over time, what happens is it starts to uh, trickle rather than pour out. And even surprisingly, after many years of practice, what you might also find is that there are still more examples that you need to clean up. They just arise in the mind. And, and when they do, you actually see how they can become a hindrance, an obstacle to the cultivation of loving kindness. And so all you do is you actually cleanse it. Now, when it comes to being thoroughly upright, that's where we look at the mental action, that what we want to abandon is the mental crookedness. So in terms of right view, in terms of non-ill will, in terms of non-covetousness, what we're trying to abandon is wrong views and you know any manifestation of ill will in the mind and coveting in the mind. Now, one often asks when it comes to right view, how do you actually abandon wrong view? You won't really know. And I think up to the point of what you know at this stage is what you actually cleanse. So if you know that there are certain perversions in relation to subha, sukha, atanicha, so that is seeing fair, um, always going towards the happiness, um, or always seeing uh, taking things as me and mine, always going towards things which are actually uh, uh, thinking that things will last, then that's where you really look at it. Now, it doesn't have to be very, very detailed at this point because these will be corrected along the way. But as a preliminary cleansing process, this is what we look at. And the other thing that occurs is that when we look at this mental side of it, we don't want to accrue anything uh, because of non-existent virtues. So if there are some things that are there that are, um, you know, not worthy, one needs to actually cleanse it because otherwise when it comes to the loving kindness, it becomes quite difficult or challenging uh, to maintain. And really as we're doing the cleansing process, what we end up with is, a, is making a strong determination or a strong intention towards abandoning unwholesome, unskillful conduct in order to, one, walk the Buddha's path, but also in order to actually do this meditation that we understand that we need to keep refining our moral virtue to a higher standard. And the more that we do so, the more it becomes a lot easier. And this will become more apparent as we go along. 
In the previous slide, I mentioned crookedness in terms of physical, verbal and mental crookedness. And there's a sutta that is quite helpful to understanding that. And it's the Samsapaniya Sutta, which appears in Anguttara Nikaya chapter 10. And it's Discourse 216. And it's about creeping. The Buddha states that beings are the owners of their kamma, heirs of their kamma. They have kamma as their origin, kamma as their relative, kamma as their resort. Whatever kamma they do, good or bad, they are its heirs. And so when it comes to Samsapaniya Sutta, what Buddha says is, if you creep along by body, speech and mind, then one's bodily kamma is crooked, one's verbal conduct or kamma is crooked, one's mental kamma is crooked, and then as a result, one's destination is crooked, one's rebirth is crooked. So if you behave in an unwholesome way, any of the dasa akusala, then whether it's by body, so the killing, taking what's not given, misconduct with the sense faculties, and then when it comes to speech, false speech, harsh speech, divisive speech or frivolous speech, and then mentally with your mind, if it's filled with covetousness, ill will, and you are holding the wrong view, then the Buddha says that you'll end up in uh, a crooked destination, so a bad destination, and your rebirth will be considered crooked. So that's very useful in, in terms of the encouragement towards dasakusala, the wholesome conduct. It's also good to look at some of the examples of animals that creep. In the Sansapaniya Sutta, um, it was asked, and what are the species of creeping animals? And the Buddha says, the snake, the scorpion, the centipede, the mongoose, the cat, the mouse, and the owl, or any other animals that creep away when they see people. Thus, a being is reborn from a being. One is reborn through one's deeds. When one has been reborn, contacts affect one. It is in this way, I say, that beings are the heirs of their kamma. The Buddha is clearly emphasizing the importance of cultivating moral virtue. It's of great benefit and good. If one doesn't, then a bad destination and bad rebirth will uh, can be expected, which will be unhappy and painful. In contrast, though, when you cultivate the wholesome conduct or virtue, so you abandon all the unwholesome physical and verbal and mental conduct, the Buddha says that one doesn't creep along by body, speech and mind. And so bodily kamma is straight, verbal kamma is straight, mental kamma is straight, and the destination is straight and the rebirth is straight. But for one with a straight destination and rebirth, I say there is one of two destinations, either the exclusively pleasant heavens or eminent families, such as those of affluent katiyas, affluent brahmins or affluent householders, families that are rich with great wealth and property, abundant gold and silver, abundant treasures and belongings, abundant wealth and grain. Thus a being is reborn from a being. One is reborn through one's deeds. When one has been reborn, contacts affect one. It is in this way I say that beings are the heirs of their kamma. And really this is one of the ways that Buddha is correcting wrong views. Uh, Buddha is ensuring that we understand the law of kamma and rebirth. And this is a very strong thread in all of the Buddha's teachings. So if it's ignored, then... It's safe to say that one could essentially be cultivating wrong view. And if you have that wrong view, then 
the encouragement and the development of loving kindness will be uh, challenged and maybe obstructed. So Buddha is saying that only through this understanding or this wisdom that we can actually make a genuine effort, a real effort towards abandoning a kusala or unwholesome conduct. And instead what he always encourages is to develop kusala, so the wholesome conduct, the wholesome virtue. The next part of Buddha's instruction is suvacho, which means uh, easy to instruct and obedient, uh, amenable, uh, willing to take instructions and all that sort of thing. And it derives from sovachasa, which means a gentleness, a suavity, agreeable quality, affability, graciousness, amenity. It could mean one is open to advice or feedback and uh, one considers things carefully, accepts it and acts upon it. And this is the opposite to duvacho, which means difficult to instruct, disobedient, not willing to listen, not willing to follow instructions, um, unruly, obstinate, that sort of thing. And so it could mean that um, if instructions are given, uh, very much like what Buddha is giving us here in the Karaniya Metta Sutta, if we're unwilling to follow the sequence of steps, then that becomes very difficult to uh, cultivate this loving kindness. And we'll go deeper into this particular quality. There is the Anumana Sutta that uh, we've looked at. And if you haven't looked at it, then there are some videos and audio that's available looking at uh, this, this Anumana Sutta because it's actually quite important. This Suvacha quality, or really the Duvacha quality, the opposite of not being easy to instruct, not being uh, easy to speak to, not willing to receive feedback, is something that obstructs our path, not just in loving kindness, but overall, because it prevents us from understanding Dhamma, but then it also prevents us from actually practicing what is being instructed and taught by the Buddha and the Noble Arahants. So if you haven't um, studied the Anumara Sutta, there are some uh, tools available uh, to actually help you to look at that. But within the uh, Karaniya Metta, we can also look at it as well. And that's what we'll cover next. If you've seen our session on the Anumana Sutta, you will have seen this before. And this is the translations for Suvacho, which is uh, easy to instruct or easy to speak to, easy to admonish, amenable, open to feedback, constructive feedback. Are willing to listen, willing to follow instructions, obedient, meek, compliant, docile, yielding, non-defiant, non-resistant. Now some of them might strike you as uh, maybe you want to reject them, such as meek, obedient. Uh, sometimes it happens that way, but once you understand the qualities of this suvacho, you start to understand that being obedient and meek isn't to just any old person, it's actually towards the Buddha and to the Buddha's teachings. And anyone who's trying or attempting to actually explain or share the Buddha's teachings or those of the noble arahants. So when it comes to Suvacho, this is a fundamental quality that the Buddha um, has as part of the core virtues of uh, cultivating loving kindness. Now in the commentary to uh, Anumana Sutta, it says that if one is 
admonished or instructed or given some kind of feedback, one should respond with, good, that was well stated. One's own faults are very hard to see. If you see me doing such a thing again, uh, speak to me out of compassion. And it's been a long time since I've been admonished or instructed by you. And then you act in accordance with, you know, the person who's giving you the instruction or in accordance with their admonishment. And uh, then what the commentary says is that a person who is suvicha is not that far from achieving distinction or progress on the path. So that's actually really quite uh, useful to know because when it comes to suvicha, what we've all probably realized by going through the Anumana Sutta is that most of the time we're actually quite duvicha, even though we're in Dhamma. It, it's actually quite apparent when you go down the list of 16 qualities that there is resistance and wrong views and all kinds of obstructive behavior that comes from being difficult to instruct and unwilling to listen to people's feedback. And then also when it comes to these sutta meditations, I find it's also a case of not being willing to follow instructions. So we might follow some of them, but then we muddle them up or we think it's okay just to ignore them or uh, not understand maybe. Or maybe it could also be that it hasn't been pointed out to us and therefore we don't follow those instructions. That is also very much true. Now when you uh, look at the kind of person that is disobedient, uh, there are certain things within the Pali Canon that says disobedience uh, want of obedience, absence of obedience, the taking up of hostile attitude, persisting in antagonism, want of respect, disrespect, irreverence, unruliness or insubordination. When the matter of observance of duties is spoken of, this is said to be disobedience. When one who is possessed of such disobedience is said to be a disobedient person. And then when it talks about obedience, it says obedience, obeying, the habit of obeying, not taking up a hostile attitude, not persisting in antagonism, respecting, respect, reverence, subordination. This is said to be obedience when the observance of duties is spoken of. A person who is possessed of such obedience is said to be an obedient person. I think when it comes, um, this is from about the different types of persons. And I think when it comes to looking at ourselves, it's really good to, to recognize or even acknowledge whether we genuinely have respect for the Buddha and his actual teachings. That every opportunity when it comes to meditating in the Buddha's uh, way of teaching, it's always an opportunity to ask that question. Because often when we flounder in meditation, not just in this loving kindness, but in all kinds of meditation, what we find is if we haven't been following Buddha's specific ins instructions, that's where, excuse me, the challenges actually come. That we are uh, imbued with a lot of mental stains that haven't been cleaned up, that we are hindered from our practice because of these obstacles of the mind, such as the hindrances that the mind doesn't concentrate easily, but even if it does, it, it falls out of it that there's just sometimes too much wanting and desiring from meditation, but it's not coming from the right place. And what you find is when you actually follow the Jnana path, the knowledge pathway of the Buddha, these things actually fall away because 
when you follow it, you're actually doing the cleaning process there and then and methodically in a sequential uh, method. And then at the same time, you find that uh, you're not striving to get to mindfulness or you're not striving to get to concentration. It happens as a result of following the steps. And that's the beauty of it, that you don't have to strive uh, to be mindful. You don't have to strive to concentrate. You just have to follow the steps. And when you do this Karaniya Metta, uh, hopefully <clears throat> the experience of meditating this way, you'll actually see that. So I'll reference the Anumana Sutta here. And if you need a... Uh, more detailed instruction uh, you can go to the, either the audio or the video that is available um, on this but I'll cover it briefly uh, just as part of, of this loving kindness as one of the core virtues that we need to establish and this is an instruction from Venerable Mahamogulana and he gives a teaching on the 16 qualities that makes one duvacho or difficult to instruct as well as the 16 qualities that makes one easy to instruct or suvacho which is the one that we're really interested for um, having the foundation for loving kindness. And then he goes on to uh, teach how to infer about oneself and then emphasizes the importance of regular review. Now. He opens the teaching by saying that even though a monk asks another monk to instruct or give feedback to him and believes he needs to be instructed or given feedback, he may have qualities that make him difficult to instruct. So the sutta says they are impatient and don't take the instruction or feedback rightly or respectfully. Then, there's, um, then that person's spiritual companions will actually think one, they're not worth instructing or giving feedback to, even though they asked. And then secondly, they'll eventually think that this person can't be trusted because they've asked for it. They've uh, not uh, taken on that feedback or they may have been hostile towards the feedback, even though they asked for it. And then as a result, over time, they won't be able to trust this person's words or even actions. And so what are those qualities? Well, Essentially, um, what the Buddha is saying is that there are a number of qualities that makes one difficult to instruct. And what we'll do is we'll look at the table. I think that will be most helpful. So in this table, you can see the 16 qualities. And it begins with, you know, having evil wishes and being dominated by evil wishes. And we went into much more detail on this because there was a specific sutta that actually went through this. And I think it was the Anangana Sutta. But essentially, you're overtaken with all these intentions and thoughts that are pushing you in the wrong direction. And so they govern and dictate how you actually uh, function. And the second one is glorifies oneself and has contempt for others. So this is basically raising oneself and putting others down. And what we actually said in this one was that quite often we don't see ourselves um, raising ourselves. More often than not, where we can catch this one is when we keep lowering others, when we keep demeaning people, belittling people. In effect, in a roundabout way, when we keep doing that, it's easy to see that inside we have this thought that I'm better. And so that's where this one comes from. The third one, the third fifth, fourth, fifth and sixth are all about anger and how it escalates. So you start off being angry and then becoming overcome by anger. Then you get hostile 
and then you become quite stubborn stubborn because of the anger and then after that you start uttering words or physical actions bordering on that anger as well and you can see this is very obstructive because at that point you're no longer easy to instruct you're actually quite difficult and you would actually also uh, have the person trying to instruct you or giving you some feedback they would actually not be happy with you at all and quite often one of the things that we forget particularly when it comes to instruction and feedback and and help is that it is essentially help someone like a spiritual friend in the dhamma path is actually trying to help you out or it's a teacher trying to help you out trying to correct you in order that you don't delay your your path that you get stuck in this one place that actually they want you to look at it and sort it out for yourself because then you can make progress that you can penetrate the teaching but if you remain in that spot and you don't take on the instruction you don't take the feedback then you actually uh, either stagnate or you actually devolve which is even worse and then it goes on the next few are around being reproved or being given you know the the feedback or the instruction and what happens is these are all the ways that one uh, responds so you uh what do you resist the reprover you denigrate the reprover you counter reprove the reprover you prevaricate and then lead the the conversation aside and then you demonstrate that you're angry and hateful and quite bitter about it and then the last one is you you fail to account for your conduct maybe you just ignore and become like a concrete bunker when when someone is trying to actually give you some feedback so all of these things are very uh difficult um when it comes to progress on the path that you you actually if you're making if you're wanting to make progress you don't make progress if you're wanting to understand the dhamma you can't understand the dhamma but all these things like these 16 qualities can also be related to everyday life that when it comes to everyday life if you have any of these qualities it also makes it very difficult for people to speak to you at home in the workplace amongst friends makes it also very difficult for people to give feedback and we forget that often even with our loved ones or even the people that we work with or that we associate with in the community it's very hard off uh, at times to give feedback and so we forget that sometimes people are actually scared of us and and it takes a huge amount of courage to be be willing to give someone feedback because usually it's not for someone else's uh benefit it may be in little ways but essentially it's mostly for the person receiving it because if they improve then then people will like them more and they'll be more agreeable in, in general and and all sorts of good things can flow from that so that's something um when it comes to accepting feedback it's a difficult thing for all of us but i think that the way the buddha presents it or in this case venerable mahamogalana it's very helpful even his approach to how we can overcome it then the last few are uh they actually intersect with the vatupama sutta so uh derogation disparaging envy stinginess uh fraudulence or dishonesty deceit or hypocrisy um also obstinacy and arrogance those ones intersect with vatupama sutta and what you can see is that these ones are 
are very difficult. They're, they're, they're very obstructive. And when we go through certain aspects further along in the Karaniya Metta Sutta, you'll see why. Because it blocks you from sending or cultivating metta to certain people if you have these particular blocks. And if you contain and are breeding a lot of defilements, it's very difficult. So when you review the list, you can see why, you know, akusala is a hindrance to the ability to cultivate loving kindness. And the final one there is actually about one's own views, that one holds on to them tenaciously and relinquishes them with difficulty. I think this is one of the ones that is very difficult for us because we all have very strong views that we've been conditioned by from, from young to, to where we are now. And along the way, through our education system, through even the way we practice and under different teachers, we get different kinds of views. But when you check with the Buddha's view, I think that's the one that really keeps us on track. That if you really recognize that Buddha um, perfectly enlightened all on his own, he had such impeccable qualities was um, known to be a perfect teacher that when you go through all the qualities of the Buddha you realize that if anything if you take refuge in Buddha then that's where you land that you don't want that you you'll be able to soften in terms of your views when it comes to the Buddha maybe not with other people because you're not sure like particularly if their conduct isn't immaculate then you're not sure but you're willing to take some of it but also you're not sure sometimes or maybe you don't know that they might be leading you down the wrong the wrong path which is something that is uh, quite apparent at times and not to be diminished in terms of the danger of it the risk of it and when we are cultivating the wrong view we may not often know it but it's usually because we are still taking some of the perversions if not all of the perversions you know thinking certain things will last that it's worth taking as me and mine not understanding dukkha fully the first noble truth and then also misapprehending form so these are the things we'll look at as we go along but i would also re reaffirm that when you are on this duvacha uh, pathway what you see is that it's very much around uh, cultivating continuous greed hatred and delusion and so it's not so apparent that you're actually traveling the right path and that's what we want to abandon in order to cultivate loving kindness now when it comes to being easy to instruct suvacho uh, venerable mahamogalana gives the example where a monk doesn't invite another monk to instruct or give feedback to them but they're easy to instruct or give feedback to having qualities that make them easy to instruct, they're accepting and take instruction rightly or respectfully. And so their spiritual companions think it's worth advising or instructing them and that person gains their trust. So when you look at the list of 16, you can see it's actually the opposite of the previous list, that you're no longer cultivating and harnessing evil wishes and uh, raising oneself and lowering others you're not angry when it comes to receiving feedback or instruction and when people give you that feedback you don't do all these um, things to basically not accept any of that feedback um, all of those are, are not present you're actually of that mind of saying thank you um, for pointing that out to me and for uh, making the effort to do so 
And in that way, the trust with your spiritual companions develops. And I think that's one of the things that is very clear that in the suttas, the Buddha says that distinction and progress only comes with kalyanamittas, so good moral spiritual friends, and also being this suvicha quality, easy to instruct. And I think that's in the Dasutra Sutta, uh, which is, uh, I think it's in the Diganikaya, and it's the last teaching of the Diganikaya. So then uh, what uh, you find is that you're traveling more the Buddha's non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion path. Your, your mind is cleansed of all these unwholesome qualities and wrong view. And then Venerable Mahamogalana's advice about how to measure oneself is that you acknowledge the behavior. So if you have the unwholesome side, you acknowledge it. And then the second thing you do is that you contemplate if another person were to have those qualities, wouldn't it be disagreeable? You wouldn't like them. You wouldn't want to be around them. And then you turn that around to yourself that if you don't like those people and can't stand them if they have them, so what would they think of you if you had them? So it's a bit of a self-check and and when you do it that way, then it's much easier to actually abandon many of these qualities, if not all of these qualities. And he also uh, emphasizes that this is something that you constantly want to review, that if you do so, it makes it so much easier to be in Dhamma with people, but also to make progress on the path. And so when you look at yourself and you, you see that you have them, you make extra effort to abandon so in your mind, you make that effort to abandon, but then you also make a strong determination not to actually have it again. And then secondly, what you do is you actually meditate um, in the absence of those qualities and you allow the rapture and joy to suffuse the mind because you know, ah, oh, I can I can train in kusala qualities. And, and Venerable Mahamogalana's simile that he gives in this is, of a person who looks in the mirror and they're youthful and they're fond of adornments and and so when they check their reflection either in the mirror or in a basin of clear water that they don't see any dirt or blemishes on their face because if they were to see it they would want to remove it but if there are no blemishes then they're happy and they they actually look oh i'm clean it looks looks good and so when you abandon a kusala and develop the kusala then this is how you actually develop that prerequisite for loving kindness. There's also the Kakachupama Sutta, which is in Majjhiminakaya uh, Discourse 21, and that's the simile of the saw. And the Buddha also refers to Suvacho in this sutta because he's advising the monks about how to train in terms of being Suvacho or easy to instruct. So what the Buddha says is, I don't say that a mendicant is easy to instruct if they make themselves easy to instruct only for the sake of robes, arms, food, lodgings and medicines and supplies for the sick. Why is that? Because when they don't get those things, uh, they're no longer easy to instruct. But when a mendicant is easy to instruct purely because they honor, respect, revere, worship and venerate the teaching, then I say that they're easy to instruct. So, mendicants, you should train yourselves. We will be easy to instruct purely because we honor, respect, revere, worship, and venerate the teaching. That's how you should train. So here the Buddha is reiterating that one trains to be suvicha 
by purely honouring, respecting, revering, worshipping and venerating the teachings, the Dhamma. And one isn't easy to instruct or uh, receiving feedback or uh, listening only because you want to gain something. So although this is uh, something that uh, Buddhist teaching to the monks, it's equally applicable to us because Buddha talks about alabamano. So this is you want to gain something, that you want the chance or the opportunity to obtain something as a result of uh, you know easy to instruct behavior, and that's not the reason for that. And Buddha's actually counseling: don't approach it with that perspective. Approach it from understanding that this is true Dhamma and from doing so, good qualities can arise in one's practice as well as being able to cultivate loving kindness. Now this was what I mentioned earlier about uh, what is conducive to progress or distinction and Dasutra Sutta, so the reference is actually in the longer discourses and it's number 34. So Buddha um, Actually, it was Venerable Sariputta in this. Venerable Sariputta was addressing the Sangha and was relating the Buddha's teachings up to uh, groups of ten. And this was towards how one attains extinguishment or uh, basically towards Nibbana. And so in the chapter, in the twos, he was actually talking about two things. One was about what two things make it conducive to the relinquishment of Dhamma? That means you've got off the Dhamma path. And he also talked about what two things lead to progress or distinction. So in the first case, he was saying when you're difficult to instruct, i.e. hard to admonish or um, difficult to give constructive feedback to, and you have bad friends, so Papa Mitata, then what happens is that will lead you away from Dhamma that you will actually relinquish Dhamma at some point, or if not already. The other two things that he spoke about was these two things leading to progress and distinction. And of course, it's being easy to admonish or easy to instruct and having morally good friends, so Kalinamitta. So it's quite clear that uh, being easy to instruct is actually very helpful on the Dhamma path, not just for cultivating loving kindness, but just overall and uh, something to really take on board if we want to make progress or to understand the Dhamma. So after the quality of Suvacho, we come to the quality of Mudu, gentleness, is often the word that's used. And it's a quality referred to many times in the suttas by the Buddha and the Arahants. And it's certainly one that... Um, in order to be gentle, one has to actually be open to feedback and, and willing to listen to instructions. So you can see that Suvacho is a prerequisite, as is the good moral conduct that we covered earlier and having that diligence towards it. So it's another wholesome quality that we want to actually look at. When it comes to the translation of Mudu, uh, it can be translated as gentle, as we've said before could also be soft, pliable, malleable, adaptable, flexible, mild, meek, uh, those sorts of things, tender. So there's a range of qualities. I don't think there's any one word that is specifically 
for uh, applicable to Mudu. What I find is when you read the different suttas, and you'll see this when I go through a few suttas on, on this mudu quality, is that it can be interchangeable. Sometimes it, it appears like gentleness in terms of one's speech and actions. But at, at another time, it can also be malleable and flexible, that one is more open and more receptive in many ways. So we'll come to that because I think it's useful to look at. So it shouldn't be mistaken for a weakness, like when sometimes you, you hear the word applied as gentleness. And oftentimes in everyday life, sometimes gentleness is seen as a weakness, but it's not how it's presented in the suttas. Mudu has more to do with one's attitude, um, one's frame of reference, maybe reflex, and, and very much so one's conduct. So rather than, if you think about it this way, rather than rough, hard, inflexible or rigid and, and so on like that, it's more about being open, receptive, gentle, flexible, welcoming of feedback, welcoming of change, particularly when it comes to one's behavior or conduct and very much so as a added next step to receiving advice or feedback. So it could be said that if one is suvacho, it is then possible for one to also be mudu. Uh, and the commentary indicates that mudu is when one is gentle in the practice of one's duties and in the entire spiritual life, capable of application to various tasks like a well-worked gold, and one should have an open expression uh, and without a frown, uh, easy to converse with, hospitable, pleasantly receptive, like a good, uh, like a good forward. So those are some of the things that may help us to understand Mudu. Again, we can come back to the Kalkachupama Sutta when it comes to Mudu. There's actually quite an interesting little uh, story in this. Again, it's the simile of the store, Majjhimanikaya 21. And Buddha teaches about Mudu in this story about um, this maid called Kali. And Kali is deliberately trying to test her mistress Videhika's good reputation for being sweet, even-tempered and calm. And so over the course of testing her mistress, what she did was she kept sleeping in and each day she slept in later and later. And so Kali came to see that her mistress could get quite angry and upset. So she was no longer gentle. And at first, the mistress blurted angry words. Then it escalated to actual physical violence, at which Kali went into the village and, and spoke to neighbours and, and people in the community, actually um, explaining about her mistress. And so Buddha reflects about this story in this way. He says, in the same way, a mendicant may be the sweetest of the sweet, the most even-tempered, of the even-tempered, the calmest of the calm, so long as they don't encounter any disagreeable criticism, it's when they encounter disagreeable criticism that they'll that you'll know whether they're really sweet, even-tempered, and calm. So this uh, aspect here is actually it lends an angle towards um, what Buddha means when it comes to mudu, that there's this link between being open to feedback, which is the suvacha quality, and being uh, mudu, that if you can demonstrate that you're even-tempered uh, and calm in the face of uh, constructive feedback or admonishment, 
then you pass the test to having this mudu quality that you're genuinely sweet, even-tempered and calm. Now, what is associated with mudu is also another quality that uh, occurs further along, but it's useful to bring it up now because it's quite relevant that it goes a little part of the way towards developing this later quality, and that is apagabo, which means courteousness or politeness. And we can understand courteousness or politeness as in all the social graces that we normally demonstrate when we meet up with people in public, that um, it applies to both physical actions and verbal actions. And so these things are also contained within mudu uh, when we talk about good manners and having that gentleness and openness and receptiveness towards people, then that also applies to our physical and verbal actions. And that means also that we, we are unwilling to be rude. Uh, one is not considered gentle if you're rude or disrespectful or, or vulgar and impolite. And, and if one is discourteous, as in one is um, pagabba, that means you're impolite. It translates as the behavior that is rough or harsh, like bad manners, disrespectful behavior. So that is non-mudu. But if one is mudu, as in gentle, pliable, malleable, then you need to demonstrate this in the physical and verbal sense, you know, this uprightness, this mildness in one's physical actions and in one's verbal actions, that you want to demonstrate politeness, courtesy, good manners, so with regards to mudu and apagabor, what this means is that some examples would be with our physical actions, we don't jump the queue, we don't jump the line, that uh, this would be seen as rude and definitely not gentle. People would get angry with us. Also, we don't push or shove. So when it comes to even crowds and things like that, and we need to get through, we wouldn't push or shove. That, that would be seen as rough or harsh. And we also don't make inappropriate contact. So this one is, is quite clear that, you know, we don't do anything to harm anyone. Uh, that would definitely not be gentle, particularly if people don't give their permission. We don't go and brush up against them or anything worse than that. Then when it comes to modesty, uh, gentleness comes with having more modest behavior, that one covers oneself, that one uh, doesn't uh, display oneself in an immodest way that uh, there's a gentleness side to it that is respectful and uh, has good manners. And we sit in a particular way as well that, that isn't uh, harsh or, or impolite. And then when it comes to uh, our gestures, well, there's definitely no angry or rude gestures. There's no finger signs. There's no waving our hands. There's no violent kind of arm movements. There's no pointing. Uh, that's one of the things that uh, would fall under that. And there's many, many more. I mean, this is something that needs to be contemplated, as in what would fall under harsh or impolite, discourteous behavior, and would that be seen as, as mudu or not? And each person should contemplate for themselves. But I think one of the good things to, to look at is if we don't like something in other people, that is usually a sign of, of someone being not, not gentle, maybe even impolite. And so that's also a good way of being able to see, okay, let's turn that around. Do we have that? Now, when it comes to verbal actions, then it's things like not talking over someone else, not using rough or rude sounds or, or speech, not raising one's voice, 
not having yeah so not having harsh or rude sounds so these are the things that would also irritate us if we notice them in other people it's quite often the case of oh we don't like it because it's impolite or it's bad manners or it's rude or it's rough and therefore that's a good way when we can't seem to see it in ourselves to turn it around and ask ourselves do we have that because that would also demonstrate that we haven't quite perfected this particular quality and how this relates to loving kindness is that if we breed such poor manifestations then one could easily uh, not actually be able to have loving kindness towards other people and in fact people wouldn't actually see those qualities in us and doesn't lend itself to to loving kindness or metta so one needs to review for oneself investigate if our actions our conduct is not up to scratch and correct this you know as part of cultivating metta but also as part of cultivating a practice that is more conducive to the buddha's path there are a number of teachings uh, by the buddha that are actually quite useful uh, to understand this quality of mudu the first one is the mudu sutta in terms of the anguttara chapter 1 discourse 47 In this particular sutta the uh, translation given is pliable uh or malleable and I think it's a good example of where we can't just use one word like gentleness to actually translate mudu that it actually needs to suit the situation and so there's many different ways of applying mudu and this is a good one for us to take on board in terms of how we develop the mind and What the Buddha says is that he's referring to a balsam tree in, in trying to explain the qualities of pliability and workability. And pliability is this mudutaya in Pali, and in Pali for workability it's kamanyataya. Now, what the Buddha says in this sutta is just as of all trees, the balsam is foremost in terms of pliability and workability, in the same way I don't envision a single thing that when developed and cultivated is as pliable and workable as the mind. The mind when developed and frequently cultivated, which we've heard before this is bhavata and bahulikata, is pliable and workable. So what's important about this sutta is that if we make effort towards developing and frequently cultivating the mind in accordance with the teachings so in this respect in terms of loving kindness if we make effort towards developing it and uh, cultivating it frequently then our minds become more pliable more malleable and workable There's also the Pamsudovaka Sutta which is in Anguttara and it's chapter 3 and it's discourse 101. This is a very lovely sutta. It's about a dirt washer. A dirt washer in the sense of uh washing for gold. And uh it actually goes into quite a lot of detail about how to make the mind more pliable, gentle or malleable. And it takes a little further than the one we saw before because this is where the Buddha uses the simile of a dirt washer. who washes the gold over and over to get rid of all the impurities so in the sutta it actually says there are these gross impurities in gold dirty sand gravel and grit the dirt washer or his apprentice having placed the gold in a vat washes it again and again until he has washed them away when he is rid of them 
There remain the moderate impurities in the gold, coarse sand and fine grit. He washes the gold again and again until he has washed them away. When he is rid of them, there remains the fine impurities in the gold, fine sand and black dust. The dirt washer or his apprentice washes the gold again and again until he has washed them away. When he is rid of them, there remains just the gold dust. So once left with only the gold dust, it's then placed into like a crucible and it's then further blown away of any remaining impurities. So it's only after that process is the gold considered pliable or malleable, workable and radiant and it's not brittle and it can be made into some kind of ornament. So when the Buddha talks about gross impurities and defilements, um, this is the misconduct by body, speech or mind that we went through earlier. And if one intends on a heightened mind, that has to be abandoned. And so then after you uh, cleanse it of that, which we've done in Uju Suju, then we have moderate impurities. And so these are the ones which are the, the sensual thoughts, the malicious thoughts, the cruel thoughts. And, and what we're trying to do is actually abandon those as well. And then when you're left um, with the fine impurities, Buddha goes on into things like you have thoughts about your family, your country, uh, connected with not wanting to be despised or considered inferior or surpassed. And only then when those are abandoned, then thoughts of Dhamma remain. So it's quite a, it's quite a detailed one. Now, initially, one's concentration is not peaceful or sublime, and usually it's because uh, what we have to do is actually keep our mind in place, so we have kind of restrain it by force. But over time, what the Buddha says in this particular sutta is that one can actually have a mind that is internally stilled, and it naturally settles, unifies, and becomes concentrated. And then what you find is you have... Uh, a more peaceful concentration, the mind is more unified and then you don't have to keep it in place by force. And when there's an opening, uh, you can actually realize like higher knowledges and everything. So what the Buddha is saying in this particular sutta, so where it relates to uh, loving kindness meditation that we're trying to do, uh, trying to develop and cultivate is that we need to purify and we've already started doing that in the early stages from there what we need to do is then look at some of the moderate and fine impurities and defilements and that's what we were trying to begin in terms of the Anumana Sutta about being Suvacha so knowing that we do all these things you can see that there's a gradual process of purification and in that way what we're doing is we're making the mind more mudu, more pliable, more workable, more radiant. And so that lends itself to why the Buddha is instructing in this particular sequence. We now come to the last quality that appears in this first verse. And this is anatimani, which is not arrogant. Now, conceit or mana is one of the ten fetters of becoming, so sangyojana. And these shackle us to sansara. And it is out of conceit that we hold on to wrong views and cling to me and mine, uh, this sense of self. And when we uh, want to cut through these ten fetters, uh, there's ten actual fetters that Buddha names in terms of obstructions to attaining Nibbana, um, what we need to develop is, particularly in the case of this 
atimana, which is the arrogance, is that we need to develop the anatimana, which is this non-arrogance. And that begins to loosen the, the bond or the shackle of mana, which is this conceit. And that's what we'll be looking at as we uh, go through this next bit. If we look at the translations for anathimani, we have the non-arrogance, but then we also have humble or humility, uh, not proud, not conceited, respectful, modest, meek, uh, free of pride, not conceited, unpretentious, not egotistical, not superior or free of superiority, not high-minded, uncomplicated, and lastly, not thinking I am better. In fact, the last one is something that often comes up when it comes to arrogance, that you actually think you are better than others. And so in speech, in action, in thought, that is what is always resonating in the mind when it comes to arrogance. Now, we've looked at this when it comes to both conceit and arrogance in the Vatupama Sutta. So if we have cleansed the mind of this particular quality, it's quite useful when it comes to cultivating loving kindness. Now, in the Vibhanga, it actually says that therein what is conceit, thus I am better. Herein a certain one by birth or by clan or by good family or by beautiful body or by property or by study or by sphere of work or by sphere of craft or by branch of science or by learning or by intelligence or by one reason or another causes conceit to arise. That which is similar, conceit, being conceited, state of being conceited, loftiness, haughtiness, flaunting, assumption, desire of consciousness for a banner. This is called the conceit, thus I am better. Now, clearly, uh, you can see that it's through a number of means that one considers one is better. It could be technical ability, it could be intelligence, it could be property and assets, it could be birth, it could be family. All kinds of things is what was explicitly mentioned there, which is quite helpful because often we don't look at it that way and it's good to contemplate if you have this kind of I am better uh, superiority complex or idea in one's mind. If it's hidden, then that's a way of teasing it out to actually see that. Now, it's often good with all these sorts of things to actually admit to oneself that you have all of it, and then at least that gives you some sort of openness to actually investigate in a deeper way. If you come from the attitude of, oh, I don't have that, but the problem is there's already a conceit there because you're not willing to look, and in actual fact, it's a dulvish quality. So, in order to be humble or not arrogant, one needs to abandon the conceit of thinking I'm better, I'm superior to others, or even the thought where you think I won't bow to anyone, or I won't bow to these kinds of people, or even the thought that I deserve you know, a certain level of respect compared to others. You know, That thought also is coming from a place of arrogance. And also the other one that comes in is, I can do what I like because I know how to get around it. That's another thing that comes out of arrogance. It's quite a insidious one that, yeah, I know. I know how to get around it so I can do what I like. There's a subtle, I'm better. I can figure it out. I can control my conditions, something like that. And in many ways, when you think in such a wrong way, you often can't see where you will go wrong. And you can't see that there is a kusala being bred in that kind of thinking and therefore as a result what will happen with our actions and speech. 
And therefore, you can see that if you are duvicha, then this quality tends to uh, be present. Whereas if you're suvicha, then it won't. Because if you're willing to listen to instruction, you're willing to receive feedback, and people are trying to help you, then you won't think yourself better. You'll think, ah, oh, I'm actually a trainee on the Buddha's path. I'm willing to, to learn. Now, someone with arrogance doesn't have that attitude. They would think, oh, why should I listen to this person, whether they're younger, older, more intelligent, less intelligent? You know, there's judgment calls being made along the way. Uh, and if you're a teacher, then that's also the thing, oh, why should I listen to a student who's come with particular feedback or particular even criticism? And the thing is that on the Buddhist path, Humility is, is such an important part of being able to make progress and be able to understand the Buddha's teaching. When it is absent, it is a huge obstacle that if you're arrogant and conceited, then it's a huge obstacle. And you think you can get away with a lot of things. That you, you think that ultimately, in a larger sense of it, in terms of one's practice, one can get away with indulging in alkosala, but still staying on track with the path. And if you really look deeply into it, that is not true. That is really not true, and the Buddha does not encourage it. Even in the Saleka Sutta, the Buddha says um, one can only overcome arrogance by non-arrogance, by humility. So, if you recall the Anumana Sutta, then you know arrogance has to be abandoned for one uh, who needs to be easy to instruct. That was part of not raising yourself and lowering others. But at the same time, it's a double-edged sword that if arrogance exists then at the same time you also can't progress because, again, when, when Buddha has Anathimani here, at this point in the Karanimetta, in the first verse, he's also double-checking in many ways. You do still have arrogance. And Suvicha is a much-needed prerequisite, as is Mudu, but then at the same time uh, you need to look at it again and be quite honest about it. So you can see why Uju, Suju, Suvicha, Mudu, you know, being upright in our uh, action, speech and mind, being thoroughly uh, upright in our action, speech and mind, uh, being easy to instruct, willing to listen and receive instructions and feedback, uh, being gentle or malleable, flexible, and having that level of courteous behavior at the physical and verbal level are all prerequisites to now being not arrogant. And uh, what is abundantly clear is that in order to understand non-arrogance, it's really helpful to recognize and acknowledge where there is actual arrogance. Because arrogance, we see um, that it can arise towards other people, you know, whether it's our loved ones or, or anyone else. That, but it's particularly when we think we are superior to them that it arises. And that could mean that there are specific family members, some friends, colleagues, other people that we know or associate with that sometimes we direct arrogance towards. Now, the Buddha has this sutta uh, called the Parabhava Sutta. It's also in the Sangyutta Nikaya. Well, actually, no, it's in the Sutta Nipata. It's 1.6, and it talks about decline. And it says that the man proud of his birth, proud of his wealth, proud of his clan, looks down upon, despises his own relatives. This is the way leading to decline. So not just in respect of loving kindness, but generally that if you're someone that is, who thinks they're better because of, you know, where they were born, 
what they have obtained or the, the wealth that they have or the lineage that they come from. And you even look down upon your own relatives, let alone anybody else. Buddha says it's a, it's a pathway to decline. So it's something that should not be cultivated, the wrong way of thinking. There's also the Chulakama Vibhanga Sutta, which uh, we've also covered before. It's in the Majjhima chapter uh, Discourse 135. And this was the one about our kamma in terms of just like a short analysis of our, our actions. And in that, the Buddha says, Here, a student, some man or woman is obstinate and arrogant. He does not pay homage to one who should be uh, hom- uh, who should receive homage, does not rise up for one in whose presence he should rise up, does not offer a seat to one who deserves a seat, does not make way for one for whom he should make way, and does not honour, respect, revere and venerate one who should be honoured, respected, revered and venerated. Because of performing and undertaking such action, and it goes on, he reappears in a state of deprivation. But if instead he comes back to human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is low-born. But here, student, some man or woman is not obstinate and arrogant. He pays homage to one who should receive homage, and so on and so forth, the same thing. Because of performing and undertaking such action, such wholesome action, he reappears in a happy destination. But if instead he comes back to the human state, then wherever he is reborn, he is high-born. And clearly we can see from the Buddha's words that there is very unwholesome kamma that will ripen as a result of uh, obstinacy and arrogance. So it's something that one shouldn't uh, breed and follow that path. And uh, so that's something to contemplate. And there are other aspects or parts of the sutta where Buddha likens it to foot wiping cloth or a bull with the cut of horns, or a defanged viper. And in many ways, what Buddha is saying is that non-arrogance is something that is good, that one should should be more docile, more tender, more soft-spoken, more kind-hearted. And this non-arrogance is something that makes people like you and want to associate with you. And when you are wanting to be Kalyanamitta or good spiritual friends, this is a quality that is seen as highly regarded. Again, we look at the Saleka Sutta, which is in the Majjhima Discourse Number 6, and it's on self-effacement, which is an act or a process of eliminating something um, or reducing its significance. Now, the Buddha in this particular sutta went on about differentiating between peaceful meditation and those kinds of spiritual practices. And he listed about 44 aspects to that. And one of them was about conceit or arrogance. And what he said was, others will be arrogant. We shall not be arrogant here. Effacement should be practiced like this. Now, what um, Buddha is emphasizing is very much going against arrogance. Because in the context of loving kindness, it's almost like if you breed arrogance, it's not genuine that you you would be able to have loving kindness to other people because you're raising yourself and diminishing others. That means you belittle others, that you think poorly of others. Now, when it comes to loving kindness, as the Buddha teaches, he wants to be able to spread that, to cultivate that to all living beings, that there's some sort of equality in seeing people as all the same, that the predicament is all the same. 
And when we have a sense of superiority, of thinking that we're better than somebody else, there is not that genuine sense of being able to have kindness towards others, that where it's coming from isn't necessarily a wholesome place. It's actually tainted. And so when people talk about a leak in one's metta bucket, that you're trying to develop this bucket full of metta, then arrogance is, is a very clear hole that can come into your bucket. And therefore, as much as you try to cultivate metta, there will be a subset or quite a huge subset of people that one can't uh, spread to. And if you have that attitude to different kinds of living beings, then that's also the case. And so it's something to really bear in mind that it's not something that we need to encourage in our practice. This sentiment is also supported in the Portalia Sutta, which is in Majjhima Nikaya 54, and it's to Portalia, who's a householder of Arpana. And he meets with the Buddha in the woods outside uh, the town where he lives. And he spoke to the Buddha as a householder. And he was actually quite angry with the Buddha because he had said to the Buddha, I've handed over my wealth to my sons. Now he only has his food and clothes. And so when the Buddha calls him a householder, he took that as some kind of disrespect because he actually thought that because he'd handed over his wealth and retired and he was only living on you know, food and clothing, that he was probably someone who is better than just the average householder. But the Buddha actually told him about true retirement from household life and that it meant far more than that. So the Portalia Sutta is actually a wonderful sutta to look at in terms of actually pulling apart certain things that we misapprehend. Anyway, at the request of Portalia, um, Buddha explained many things, particularly around sensual desires and around misapprehending this idea of Subha versus Asubha, so seeing something as fair in the foul. And this is something very much needed as a foundation to cultivating loving kindness. So in this sutta, the Buddha says, with the support of non-arrogance, arrogance is to be abandoned. So you see a similar method of instruction, that you don't overcome arrogance with arrogance, like more arrogance, that will actually grow and, and increase arrogance. But the only way to overcome it is by non-arrogance or humility. And it goes on in the Portalia Sutta, it actually says, Here a noble disciple considers thus, I am practicing the way to abandoning and cutting off of those fetters, because of which I might be arrogant. If I were to be arrogant, I would blame myself for this. The wise, having investigated, will censure me for this. And on the dissolution of the body, after death, because of being arrogant, an unhappy destination would be expected. But this arrogance is itself a fetter and a hindrance. And while taints, vexation and fever might arise through arrogance, there are no taints, vexation, fever for one who is not arrogant. So it's very clear what the Buddha is encouraging. And I would strongly encourage to have a look at the Portalia Sutta and look at the simile that the Buddha uses when it comes to arrogance.